When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Now, we've talked for years about tossing leaves, twigs, seed pods, etc., etc., into our aquariums. As a community, we've elevated the art and honed the rationale for adding these materials to our aquariums. The applications for botanicals have been everything we expected they would be, and more. What happens, though, when we allow leaves and seed pods and twigs and such to accumulate on or within the substrate in our aquariums? Now, over the past century or so of the aquarium hobby, it's become pretty much doctrine that we don't want to allow stuff like uneaten food, fish waste, or detritus from, you know, to accumulate in the substrate. We've been implored to siphon this stuff out regularly so that it doesn't accumulate. We've been implored, you know, implored to do this at all cost. Makes sense, right? And I think it does. Now, on the surface, I totally get it. Allowing uneaten food and excessive amounts of fish waste to accumulate in your sand bed is conceivably a recipe to create a nutrient sink in which the water will begin degrading over time, blah, blah, blah. Sound advice, sure. I mean, no one wants to have increasing phosphate, nitrate, or other organic compounds accumulating in their tank. And I think that makes sense. I've seen many recommendations to thoroughly siphon out your substrate like weekly or monthly. Now, again, I don't have a problem in us preaching good habits to new aquarists. You know, don't overstock, don't overfeed, filter your aquarium properly, complete regular water exchanges. I mean, sure, these are foundational best practices and part of the fundamentals of keeping fishes in closed aquatic systems. No, no argument there. I have nothing to argue about that. That being said, though, if you're not overfeeding, not overstocking and conducting regular water exchanges, why is there a necessity to thoroughly siphon the substrate frequently? Think about it for a second before you go and pelt me with stones for my heretical questioning of this fundamental practice of aquarium keeping. The reality is that we've been urged to siphon out stuff from the substrate for fear of it accumulating and degrading water quality, right? Okay, sounds good. However, consider that. In an otherwise well-managed aquarium, the organics in the substrate are food for bacteria and other organisms which live within the sand bed. Ask yourself why we try to seek a balance of life forms within our aquarium for the first, in the first place. We embrace good husbandry because we want to facilitate the proper biological function within the system. There's no argument there. But that means partnering with our friends, the bacteria, to facilitate nutrient processing. So if you're a typical aquarist and run a properly stocked aquarium and embrace generally accepted husbandry practices, it seems to me that the, you know, aggressively siphoning the substrate is essentially removing food resources from the bacteria and other organisms which live within the substrate. So in our effort to keep the tank clean, we're actually starving these organisms and creating this sort of dependency on our aggressive, artificially imposed maintenance practices. And sure, if you're dealing with an already depleted bacterial and microfaunal population within the substrate because you're siphoning it all the time and you continuously actively siphon it, 
you're creating one of those knife's edge situations where the slightest possible lapse or disturbance can create a potential disaster. Now we've talked about detritus and the bad rap it seems to get from the hobby to the point where you're probably sick of hearing about it, but it's something that feels really important. Again, working with nature and natural processes is a fundamental part of aquarium keeping, and it's very a very foundational part of the botanical style aquarium movement. I strongly believe that allowing these organisms that being you know, bacterial biofilms, fungal growths, etc., to not only appear, but to thrive within our systems, despite what they look like, keeps our systems stable and healthy. And letting leaves and botanical materials break down via decomposition not only supports the overall environment within the aquarium, it fuels the life forms which accomplish this. In my experience, and the reported experience from hundreds of aquarists who play with botanical materials breaking down in and on their aquarium substrates, Undetectable nitrate and phosphate levels are typical for this kind of system. When combined with good overall husbandry, it makes for incredibly stable systems. And again, I'm not talking about allowing tons of uneaten food and fish poop to accumulate. That's a different story altogether. Now, I've been thinking through further refinements of the idea of using deep, a deep bed of botanicals mixed with sand or substrate, and that whole relationship. I've been spending a lot of time researching natural aquatic systems and contemplating how we can translate some of this stuff into our closed system aquaria. Now, I realize when contemplating really deep aggregations of substrate materials and botanicals and such, we're dealing with closed systems and the dynamics which affect them are way different than those in nature, which is a big open system for the most part. And I realize that experimenting with these unusual approaches to substrates requires not only a sense of adventure, a direction and some discipline, but a willingness to accept and deal with an entirely different aesthetic than what we know and love. You have to see stuff breaking down in biofilms and detritus and so forth. And that also includes pushing into areas and ideas which might make us uncomfortable, not just for the way they look, but for what we are told might be the possible risks. One of the things that many hobbyists ponder when we contemplate creating deep botanical heavy substrates consisting of leaves and sand and other botanical materials is the buildup of hydrogen sulfide, CO2, and other undesirable compounds within the substrate. Well, it does make sense that if you have a large amount of decomposing material in an aquarium, that some of these compounds are going to accumulate in a heavily active substrate. Now, the big boogeyman that we all seem to zero in on in our sum of all fears scenarios is hydrogen sulfide, which results from the breakdown of organic matter in the total absence of oxygen. Let's think about this just for a second. In a botanical bed, with materials placed on the substrate or loosely mixed on the top layers, will it all pack down enough to the point where there is a complete lack of oxygen and we develop a significant amount of this reviled compound in our tanks? I think that we're more likely to see some oxygen in the layer of materials, and I can't help but speculate, and yeah, it is just speculation, that actual denitrification, nitrate reduction, which lowers nitrates while producing free nitrogen, might actually be what's occurring deep in the botanical bed or sand bed that we've played with. And it's certainly possible to have denitrification without dangerous hydrogen sulfide levels. As long as even very small amounts of oxygen and nitrates can penetrate into the substrate, this will not become an issue for most systems. I have yet to see a botanical style aquarium where the material has become so compacted as to appear to have no circulation whatsoever within the botanical layer. Now, sure, I'm not a scientist, and I don't have fancy lab equipment to test every aspect of this. And I base this on close visual inspection of numerous aquariums and the basic chemical tests I've done on my own systems under a variety of circumstances. Now, as one who's made it a point to keep my botanical style aquariums in operation for very extended time frames, though, I think this is significant. 
the bad side effects that we're talking about should manifest over these longer time frames. And they just haven't. And then there's the question of nitrate. Although not the terror that, you know, ammonia and nitrite are known to be, nitrate is much less so, yes. However, as nitrate accumulates, fish will eventually suffer some health issues. Ideally, we strive to keep our nitrate levels no higher than five to 10 parts per million in our aquariums. As a reef aquarist, I've always been of the keep it as close to zero as possible mindset. But that's not always the most realistic or achievable target in a heavily botanical-laden aquarium, or for that matter, a well-stocked reef tank. You have a bit more wiggle room in a botanical aquarium, in my opinion. Now, when you start creeping towards numbers like 50 parts per million, you're getting closer to a number that should alert you. It's not a big stretch from 50 to 75 and higher. And then you get towards the range where health issues could manifest themselves in your fishes. And we're not talking about just algae and stuff like that. We're talking about health issues for your fishes. Now, many fishes will not show any symptoms of nitrate poisoning until the nitrate level reaches like 100 parts per million or more, which I've never seen in an aquarium before. I suppose it's possible. I just don't know how you would do that. However, studies have shown that long-term exposure to concentration of nitrate stresses fishes, making them more susceptible to disease, affecting their growth rates, and inhibiting spawning in many species. This makes a lot of sense, right? At those really high nitrate levels, fishes will become noticeably lethargic and they may have other health issues that are obvious upon visual inspection, like open sores or reddish patches on their skin. And then you'd have those mysterious deaths and sudden death, essentially from shock of newly added fishes to the aquarium because they're simply not acclimated to the higher nitrate concentrations. Okay, that's scary stuff. And it's kind of unusual and that's the extreme. However, high nitrate concentrations are not only manageable, there's something that's completely avoidable in our aquariums, whether they're botanical aquariums stocked with leaves or just a basic normal aquarium. Quite honestly, even in the most heavily botanical laden systems I've played with, and personally I've played with a lot, I have never seen a higher nitrate reading than around five parts per million. I attribute this to common sense stuff, good quality source water, you know, reverse osmosis deionized, careful stocking, good feeding, good circulation, not disturbing the substrate, and consistent basic husbandry practices, you know, water exchanges, filter maintenance, etc. It's not like I'm doing some brilliant, you know, rocket science move here. It's patience. It's doing things slowly. Now, that's just me. I'm no scientist. I'm certainly not a chemist, but I have a basic understanding of maintaining a healthy nitrogen cycle in the aquarium. And I'm habitual, perhaps even obsessive about consistent maintenance. Water exchanges are not a, when I get around to a thing in my aquarium management playbook, they're baked into my practice. So yeah, although nitrate is a concern in botanical style aquariums, it need not be an ominous cloud hanging over our success. Relatively shallow sand or substrate beds seem to be optimal for denitrification, and many of us employ them for the aesthetics as well. You know, a light stirring of the top layers if you're concerned about potential dead spots or something that's permissible in my opinion. Any debris that gets stirred up can easily be removed mechanically by filtration too, as we've mentioned before. Of course, as we've already discussed, you don't have to go crazy siphoning the hell out of your sand every week, essentially decimating populations of the beneficial microscopic infauna or interfering with their function in the process. Okay, so I think we've at least started to beat the shit out of the biological aspects of substrate composition and maintenance. Let's circle back to aesthetics for a second because that's where we always seem to end up. I think one of the most liberating things we've seen in the botanical style aquarium niche is our practice of utilizing the substrate itself to become a feature aesthetic point in our aquariums, as well as a functional mechanism for the inhabitants. In other words, 
in a strictly aesthetic sense, the bottom itself becomes a big part of the aesthetic focus of the aquarium, with botanicals placed upon the substrate, or in some cases becoming the substrate. The materials from you know form an attractive, texturally varied microscape of their own, creating color, interest, and you know functions that we're just starting to appreciate. In fact, I dare say that one of the next frontiers in our niche would be an aquarium which is just substrate materials without any vertical relief provided by wood or rocks. I've executed a few aquariums based on this idea, specifically with leaves, as you've seen, and I've been extremely happy with their long-term performance. Oh, and they kind of look cool too, so yeah. Now, nature provides no shortage of habitats with unusual substrate composition for inspiration. If we look at them in the context of the surrounding terrestrial ecosystem, there are a lot of possible functional takeaways that we as hobbyists can apply to our aquarium work. And the interesting thing about these features from an aesthetic standpoint is that they create an incredibly alluring look with a minimum of design required on the hobbyist part. Remember, you can put together a substrate with an aesthetic mix and uh, you know of textures and colors and be all perfect and all that stuff, but that's about it because we have to cede some of the work to nature because she's going to take over. Once your substrate's in place, nature takes over and the materials develop that lovely patina of biofilms and microbial growth and fungal growth. They start breaking down. Some may be moved about by grazing activities of the fishes or otherwise slowly redistributed around the aquarium. I suppose the degree to which you, this happens is dependent upon the type of substrate material you utilize. Of course, we are finding that it's not just us who are interested in unique substrate materials. And that's why we're kind of excited about, and I'm sounding a little commercial here today, but kind of excited about the nature-based sediment and substrates that we've been offering for now about, oh, about a month or so. And they've been moving at a rate that even we couldn't have predicted. A lot of you people get this idea behind it, and that's very exciting. But let's just review it one more time in the context of maintenance and what to expect and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, yeah, you're going to have to make a mental shift to appreciate a different look and function with our sedimented substrates because they are comprised of sediments, muds, clays, and sands, and all, all kinds of stuff, soil. And many hobbyists simply can't handle that. I get it. We've been very upfront with this stuff too to ward off the, you know, I've added nature base to my tank and it looks like a cloudy mess. This stuff is shit you know, type of emails that inevitably come in when people don't read first before they purchase something. Fortunately, that hasn't happened yet, which is great. The Agapo and Varzea substrates that we formulated and have released were intended to be a terrestrial for a period of time to get the grasses and plants going and then inundated gradually over time. And the way we use them is different. We don't rinse them before use. You can fill them with water right off the bat. You know, in other words, you can add them to an aquarium, dump all the water in. However, you should be ready for some cloudy or sedimented, silty water for at least a week or more. But it does settle out. That's just because of the unique composition. But it takes time, but it will settle out. And again, this is not unlike what happens in the wild habitats. Newly inundated forest floors have a lot of leaf litter, seed pods, soil, and, and so forth. And they'll be quite turbid for some period of time before they gradually settle out. If you understand the context for which these are intended and the habitats which they help replicate, this is perfectly acceptable and logical. Of course, you need to make that mental shift, right? And yeah, you can use them in a more conventional manner right from the start. I've had a number of customers who have done this. Of course, I put them through the tests and did that. If you understand the way they'll impact the look of your tanks for a while, totally acceptable. Although these substrates can grow both terrestrial and aquatic plants well, they were not intended to be you know, generic planted tank substrates specifically. We're not trying to compete with the many, many fantastic specialized planted aquarium substrates out there. It's not some shot across the bow, tannin is coming for you bullshit. Rather, these substrates are modeled after relatively nutrient-poor soils and specialized aquatic habitats, which will grow plants well, 
likely not as well as the fancy clay pellets that you're, you know, that are formulated specifically to grow plants, but they will grow plants. Yeah, our Agapo and Varzea mixes can grow plants like grasses and marginal stuff pretty well. And we are hearing about pretty good aquatic plant growth from users too. However, I'd imagine you're not going to be doing your next Dutch-style aquascape or Iwagumi with our nature-based substrates. And because of their price, you simply aren't likely to do a 50 or 100 gallon tank with them. I mean, you could, God bless you, but you know, hey, I understand. Aragapo and nature, you know, and Varzea uh, substrates mimic, you know, these sandy acidic soils that have a low nutrient content. And as you know, the color and acidity of the flood water is due to the acidic organic humic substances, tannins, that dissolve into it. The acidity from the water translates into acidic soils, which makes sense, right? It's all interrelated. We've talked about this many times before. Much like in nature, the materials that we place on the bottom of an aquarium will become an active, integral part of the aquatic ecosystem. From a functional standpoint, bottoms comprised of our, you know, our substrates, uh, supplemented with uh, a variety of materials, will form a sort of intake refugium, if you will, which allows small aquatic crustaceans, fungi and other microorganisms to multiply and provide supplemental food for the aquarium, as we've touched on many times before. They become not only physical places for fishes to hide and forage among, they become an integral part of the entire closed aquarium ecosystem itself, helping influence water parameters, foster growth of fungi and microorganisms, and just maybe some form of nutrient export or denitrification, although the last part's still a bit speculative as we talked about before. It's certainly no stretch to call our use of botanicals as a form of active substrate, much you know, like the use of clays, mineral additives, soils, etc., in planted aquariums. Of course, we're not talking about growing plants specifically in this context. Although our emphasis is on creating specific water conditions, fostering the growth of microorganisms and fungi, as well as creating unique aesthetics, versus the more traditional substrate materials fostering conditions specifically for plant growth. Okay, I beat the crap out of that analogy, you get the difference. And as we play more with botanicals, we're finding out that unique ways to work with interesting materials to create substrate-centric systems that check all the boxes, functionality, interest, aesthetics, stability, it's all there. We've talked about functional aesthetics created by botanicals in the aquarium, the potential for adding biological support and filtration and potentially even denitrification. And it's a big, big topic with lots to be explored, discovered and deployed into our aquariums. Flirting with a substrate only or substrate focus tank is one of those tantalizing at first seemingly awkward yet ultimately transformational little projects that we can play with as botanical style aquarists let's keep on this stuff let's keep questioning hobby you know aquarium hobby dogma but let's not become dogmatic ourselves if we're off on our assertions let's figure out why and see just what's happening and it's all big one grand experiment and everyone's invited to play that's super exciting so stay excited stay motivated stay curious stay unique stay observant stay creative and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.